Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm your host, Russ Chevalier. This episode is brought to you by a suggestion from listener Fernando. You can help us grow our audience by telling your friends and peers about this podcast, by posting about it on social media, and by writing us a positive review on iTunes. I really appreciate that you invest the time to listen, and thank you very much for your support. Welcome to episode 90. Yeah, 90 episodes. Holy moly. In this episode, we're going to examine the subject of shooting night skies. Hey gang, I hope that you're all doing well and looking forward to something a bit different. For many of us, capturing powerful night sky images is something that we aspire to, but it sometimes appears like it's a bit of a black art. Uh, let's start with a conversation about gear and what you're going to want to have in your night photography kit. I say night photography kit because you will end up wanting to do more work by night than just night skies. Although that subject is our focus this episode, man, I am just the king of bad puns today. First, you're going to need a camera that can accept a remote release. This will be a port on your camera, and I'm going to suggest that if your camera does not have a locking port for the release, that you have a plan to secure that release cable. You might be fumbling around in the dark. Hey, and gaffer tape is cheap. I'm going to suggest keeping the release simple, specifically a mechanical release that doesn't require its own power source. Well, you can certainly use one of those electronic release timer thingies. They can be really great. You just want to make sure that you start with fresh batteries before your big shoot. On some cameras, you can use your smartphone. Just be aware that the phone screen's going to wreck your night vision. And if you're less than careful, it could impact your long exposure shot. On a super long exposure, you might even run into battery issues. You're going to want a wide angle lens. And I'm going to suggest the wider, the better to get a really big feel to your night sky work. As part of your composition, you're going to want to put something in the foreground that will provide some sense of scale and be recognizable in silhouette. That something shouldn't move around too much either. Think like a boulder, a rock, a line of trees, something that's going to be relatively stagnant. From the perspective of focal length to choose, anything 16 mil or wider full frame equivalent is ideal but you can still do some really nice work at up to 24 millimeter full frame equivalent. Listen, that doesn't mean you can't shoot with other lenses. You can shoot with anything you want. You're just going to give up some of that sense of massive scale. Now, of course, you're going to need a good solid tripod and you want a tripod that's going to be rated for at least the weight of your camera and lens on the head and the leg set multiplied by two. Right, so if your total kit weighs to about 6 pounds, you're going to want to make sure that the head can support 12 pounds and that the leg set can support 12 pounds. It's just a general guideline, obviously, or if you're high or low by a pound, it's not that big a deal, but make sure you've got at least a good set of capacity in your kit. It's one of the many places where that cheap-ass tripod is going to let you down. Carbon fiber legs are preferable but aluminum works fine so long as the tripod is good and solid with no wobble and no tendency to transfer ground vibrations up to the camera. 
Get yourself a white towel that you can lay on the ground where you're going to put your bag and all of your gear. Yes, it could get dirty, so a washable towel is important. But believe me, a good dark night is really dark, and that white towel is going to be a huge help in finding your kit when you need it. It's also going to keep mud and dirt off the bottom of your camera bag and off your kit. You're also going to need a simple flashlight with a red lens. The red lens will help you see your camera and the knobs, the dials, the controls, but without completely destroying your night vision. Now you can make this with a regular flashlight and a red gel, but seriously, you can get flashlights with red gels in their kit for really low money. And you're not looking for a light that's going to be able to illuminate Saturn. Just a small pen light with a red gel is going to do the job. You're going to need some kind of timer. And that's going to have to be a timer that you can see readily in the dark and that can help you measure your long exposures. Your smartphone clock with a simple timer can be a good choice, or you can get a remote control cable that has a timer built in. Whatever you choose, learn how to use it well before you go outside in the dark. Judging the quality of your image off the LCD is going to be challenging. Have a loop with you such as the excellent Hoodman loop that I recommend all the time, but also know how to zoom in on your LCD screen before you go out, know where the zoom buttons are, so you can activate them without having to fire lights all over the camera. Remember that your camera is basically a brick without a functioning battery. So charge your battery up fully before you go out and carry spare batteries. If you've got a DSLR, I'm going to suggest at least one spare, and if you're using common mirrorless cameras, three is good, two is the minimum. Remember, your shutter is going to potentially be open for very long times, and holding that shutter open is going to eat up your battery. Next, we need to think about the place where we're going to go make these photographs. And you're going to need really dark skies and, of course, clear skies. Your weather forecasting app can help you with finding a clear night, but the bigger problem is going to be light pollution. The stars and the planets are all up there, but you might not be able to see them at all because of the amount of glow from cities and towns. And this is going to mean getting out into the country. And I mean out. There is an iOS app, probably available on Android, called Dark Sky, and it will show you the levels of light pollution on a map. I live in a town of about 90,000 people near a highway corridor. To get really dark skies, I'd have to travel a couple of hours away. Deep inside provincial or state parks can be good locations for night sky photography. Get yourself the app and find out for yourself where the best places are for you to shoot. I live about an hour from the city of Toronto, and its glow still has a significant impact on the light pollution where I am. Now, don't confuse the Dark Sky app with the app called Dark Skies. Dark Skies is used to calculate maximum exposure times before stars move based on your focal length and sensor size. That's a super useful app as well, and we're going to talk about it a little later on, but it's not going to help you find areas of minimal light pollution. Let's next look at the exposure. And one of the things that you're going to have to decide on is whether you want your stars to be frozen or to produce trails in your shot. If you want frozen stars, Remember that app called Dark Skies? Yeah, now you're going to need it because it's going to make it really simple. 
All you do is in the app, choose your camera sensor size, the focal length of the lens that you're going to use. And if you're using a zoom, that means you're going to need to be able to read the focal length off the lens when you're doing this calculation. And of course, then you're going to use the app to tell you the maximum shutter open time that you can use before the earth's movement shows the stars as streaks and not points. You can also use what is now called the rule of 600 to get a good idea by dividing your focal length into 600. The resulting number is approximately in seconds where you want to be. Let's look at an example. Let's suppose that we had a 14 millimeter full frame equivalent lens and through the math that would have a maximum shutter open time of 600 divided by 14 or 42.85 seconds, always round down. So in this case, 42 seconds. That's accurate for a full frame sensor, but it's not accurate for an APS-C size sensor or a micro four thirds sensor. In that case, you're going to divide the focal length into 400, not 600. So for an APS-C sensor, for example, same focal length, we'd allow for a maximum shutter open time of about 27 seconds before the stars appear to move. Remember that these rules as quoted are really just guidelines and the guidelines tend to leave out this concept of sensor size. And that's why spend the massive amount of money. What is it? A couple of bucks and get an app like dark skies because it's just so valuable. Once you determine your maximum shutter open time, let's suppose that our subject is the Milky way. You're going to need to know when it will be visible. I recommend the app called Starwalk 2 to learn what is going to be where in the sky on any day at any time. There are going to be stellar objects that you're just not going to see at certain times of year. Now, you could certainly go to an observatory site on the web to find out what's going to be appearing when, but I love this app. It's just golden, and it also provides an augmented reality view so you can literally hold your phone up and point it at different points in the sky so you can determine what you really see and what the app is showing you to determine which stars are stars, which are actually planets, and also track moon and planetary rise and planetary set. The planets in our solar system, with the exception of Pluto, which has been declared not to be a planet, although that's an ongoing argument, tend to follow the same relative path in space, and this is called the plane of the ecliptic. Thus, if you can find Venus or Mars, you can also find Jupiter and Saturn as well, presuming you've got really dark skies and the sky is clear. Now that you've got your shutter open time and a place to point your camera, we next need to determine the other two elements of the exposure, the aperture and the ISO. Aperture is pretty easy. Wide-angle lenses have lots of depth of field, so we don't need to use small apertures. A small aperture is just going to give you a really long exposure. A good place to start for night skies is f5.6. It's probably in the area of greater sharpness centered edge for your lens as well. Wide open can be used, but it's not optimal, but it will give you shorter exposures, which may be important if you need to freeze stellar motion you're going to want to shoot at your lowest possible ISO. High ISOs are supported by pushing more power to the sensor, which causes it to heat up more, and that reduces the signal-to-noise ratio, and as a result, you get more digital noise. The pretty concept of ISO invariance doesn't actually work in practical terms, 
So you can move on past that and not worry about it. You can also move on past your light meter. The EV level, the exposure value level of the night sky is so low that your light meter has no idea what to do. It's not going to help you at all. And if you spend time worrying about it, you're going to get bad exposures. Shoot in raw. We're not even going to talk about JPEG for this. You're going to need all the data that you can get. For non-moving skies, meaning fixed point stars, you're going to take some experimental shots at the maximum shutter open time. If it's too bright, close down the aperture one stop, or if your ISO is higher, drop it down a full stop and try again. If it's too dark, raise the ISO a stop or open the lens a stop if you have that space available. Once that lens is wide open, then you're limited to raising your ISO. Remember, your camera meter is useless, so experiments are the only way to go. Because these exposures are never that long, you're going to have lots of time to try things. And remember I said that 14 mil full frame maximum time was going to be under 43 seconds, 42 we said. You can do an awful lot of experiments in a few minutes to, to get the exposure the way you want it. I want to touch on this subject called long exposure noise reduction, sometimes referred to as LENR, because we love acronyms. The longer that the shutter is open, the more digital noise is going to be captured. That's what, what's so. You can't beat it. Most modern cameras have a function called long exposure noise reduction or LENR built right in, and it works incredibly simply. When it's activated, the camera at the end of the main exposure will automatically make another one with the shutter closed for the same time as the original exposure. Then it's going to use its built-in very powerful CPU to measure all areas of the second exposure that are not black. And then it's going to make them black on the first exposure, and it does a stunningly good job of negating noise artifacts. This explanation is a little bit simplistic, but it's easy to understand. The one thing to note with long exposure noise reduction is that every exposure effectively takes twice as long as you planned. So, for example, if you had an exposure that was 30 seconds long, you know that there's going to be another one that's another 30 seconds generated by the long exposure noise reduction function, and then there's going to be a little bit of processing time at the end for cleanup. In my experience, I find it safe to assume that when LENR or long exposure noise reduction is involved, Double your exposure time and add 20% just to know that when that's about when your camera is going to free up for your next shot. Because of long exposure noise reduction, particularly for very long exposures, many night photographers will actually take two bodies and two different lenses so they can make more images in the limited time they have available. You can certainly try to shoot without long exposure noise reduction turned on, and then use the noise reduction function in your post-processing software. Try it. Perhaps you'll be much more successful than I've been. It's important to remember that all images that you make are processed to some extent without any input from you at all. As I've noted in other articles, all RAWs are not created equal. The Sony Corporation has come under serious fire from night photographers, calling their cameras star killers because the built-in processing to try to alleviate noise has been known to treat star points as aberrations and actually remove them. Please understand I'm not assaulting Sony or saying that this is true for every Sony camera, 
but you might want to do some research into this a little bit if you are a Sony shooter. I have not heard this complained about other brands, but that doesn't mean it could not happen there as well. Next, let's talk about star trails. Star trail shots look really cool. You get that arc of light around a single point, and they just look awesome. Now, to get that arc around that single point requires that if you're in the northern hemisphere, you can find Polaris. Polaris, also known as the North Star, it's unique at this point in time because Polaris does not appear to move as the Earth rotates and moves in its orbit. It wasn't always this way, and it's not always going to be this way in the future. But given the duration of cosmic time, things should be good for you for a little while yet. Use Starwalk 2 to find Polaris. Or you can look for it yourself by finding the Little Dipper, also known as Ursa Minor, and then determining which star is Polaris. Candidly, the app is quicker. Now, if you live in the Southern Hemisphere, there's no star aligned with the South Pole as Polaris is with the North Pole, but you can still get arcs. You're just not going to have arcs centered on a particular star. I want to teach you a quick trick of math that is going to help you get good long exposures and know what the exposure should be very quickly. You don't want to be experimenting with super long exposures at low ISOs all night to try to find something good because you'll end up being out all night and you might not get anything. So we're going to use a guideline called Magic 60 where seconds become minutes. Let's say in our example that your camera's lowest native ISO is 100. That's going to be the best noise level that you can get, right? So what you're going to do is you're going to multiply that by 60 and set the next closest major ISO. In this example, that's going to be 6400. If your camera doesn't go to 6400, sorry, then this trick isn't going to work for you. Okay, ISO is set to 6400 now, right? Good. Take a one-second exposure. Don't forget to use your cable release. But you can use the one second option of shutter speed built into your camera because most cameras can actually clock up to a 30 second exposure natively. You still want to use the release because you don't want to impart any camera shake from pressing the button. What you're going to do is keeping the ISO where it is, you're going to try different shutter open times, doubling each time until you find an exposure that you like. And that's the important thing. There's no right or wrong. It's what you like. Don't forget to use your loop and don't forget to zoom in to be sure on that LCD so you can see that you've got the brightness level that suits your needs best. So you've done some experimentation and you say in your situation, you're happiest with an eight second exposure and it gives you the look that you like. Perfect. Remember I said that seconds become minutes. Now set your ISO to 100 and make an eight minute exposure. It's going to have the same exposure look and feel as the eight second exposure, but because you're doing it at low ISO, it's going to minimize noise and improve image quality and dynamic range. Dynamic range matters enormously in night sky photography, unless of course you want murky soup. Check the exposure and be pleased. You can now make other shots and other compositions. Because of long exposure noise reduction, you have a choice to make for star trails. You can make a single long exposure up front and then let Leonard do its stuff at the end, 
Other folks will do a series of shorter exposures with Leonard disabled and stack the images in Photoshop. This has proven to work pretty darn well. So instead of making a single 60 minute exposure with the accompanying 60 minute black exposure, you could make 61 minute exposures and stack them later in Photoshop. Just make absolutely sure in either case that the camera and the tripod aren't moved, jarred or otherwise jostled. If that happens, whether it's a single long or multiple short exposures, your arcs are going to look jagged. This no jostling guidance is really important in long exposure work. I live in Canada and had a conversation with a very accomplished night sky photographer. He'd gone up north where the Precambrian shield is literally right underfoot. His first foray presented him with enough micro shake to really annoy him. It turns out there was a freight rail line about four kilometers away from his shooting spot and the freights were running when he was shooting. A fast freight is a very heavy and thundering beast. There was enough ground vibration from the nearby railway that the freight going by would impact his images. The same thing can happen with nearby highways, particularly if they're busy at night with large trucks. One person has pointed out correctly that you have very dark skies in the middle of a large lake. Some quick reasoning tells us that lakes move and long exposures from a boat deck may not work out quite as hoped, although you might get some interesting effects. Water is extremely efficient when it comes to wave propagation, so even though the water may feel glassy smooth to you, and that you're not moving at all, it's not going to be a stable platform. If you're now thinking, hey, that could apply to the deck or the dock where I moor my boat, you'd be right. Now that you know the basics of night sky photography, make a plan, pick a location, get your kit together, and go out to try your hand at this. You might find that there are interesting things on the ground that you can also use for photography. Try out light painting or flash pop photography. There's lots of stuff to shoot in the dark. But I'm going to suggest that any light painting or flash pop photography be left until after you've done your night sky work so you don't destroy your night vision. Do you have an idea for an article or a tutorial? Do you have a question, photo, or video unrelated to this article? Send me an email directly at ross at the photo video guy or post in the comments. If you shop with B&H Photo Video, please consider doing so through the link on the photovideoguy.ca as this helps support my efforts and has no negative impact whatsoever on your shopping experience. If you find the podcast or articles or videos of value, please consider clicking the donation tab in the sidebar of the website and buy me a coffee. Your donation actually doesn't go to coffee. It goes to help me keep things going here. Email your questions on any photo or video topic, and I will try to respond within a day. I'm Ross Chevalier. Thanks for reading, watching, and listening. And until next time, peace.